Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Sherry Chung. Sherry's a composer based in Los Angeles who's worked on projects such as Family Guy, Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, and most recently, Kung Fu. In this episode, we talk about her growth as a composer, the difference between being a composer and a film composer, dealing with imposter syndrome, what it takes to become a full-time composer, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Sherry Chung. So... One thing I am wondering about is you fell in love with the score for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and that was kind of a big moment for you saying, oh, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. But I'm curious what that first output was after you realized, oh, composition, film scoring. What was that first thing? Was it writing songs at the piano? Was it doing something else? That's a good question. I don't know for certain. I think I was already songwriting by that point. I was already writing songs and they were, didn't always have lyrics. Some of them were just like using my voice as just like another instrument. It wasn't necessarily supposed to be singing, I, I guess. It's so, it's so interesting because at that time in my life, it you know, the piano was in the living room, right? So it's like the piano's in the living room. Everyone can hear everything. I was one of those kids. I was a little bit more shy and self-conscious about my creation. So I know some kids are just like, you know, la la, they just like anyone can just hear them and they'll just create and they just have no anxiety about it at all. But I was, I was sort of much more a private person. So as I got older, I was able to get a keyboard in my room, you know, and that's where I can like create, you know, my room. And that, and that's where I think a lot more of the composing or compositions or what, what I tried to do then as compositions started happening was when I was sort of in private. But yeah, I, I think it was just still songs at that point. <laughs> Were you sharing them with anyone? Yeah. And they, you know, I couldn't really write full songs at that point because I just I just didn't know what to do. So they ended up just being like little snippets, like little almost, you know, da da ba ba da da. You know, I mean, that's that's Marcy Mario. So don't, I did not write that. Sorry, that was a really bad example. But just you know, like they were just more like party tricks, if you will. Like, hey, listen to this cute little ditty that I wrote. That's just you know a cute little four sentence rhyme kind of thing. But yeah, they weren't really full on songs yet because. I didn't really understand what was happening. (laughs) That makes sense, especially when you're first starting out. So uh, over time, you, of course, practiced, got better. And eventually you went to study just straight up music composition before you went into studying film scoring and all that. And I noticed in those sorts of programs for studying composition, there tends to be a bit of requirement of self-motivation for people like you to start learning how to do film or with media, because it's just straight composition without any media, sometimes without any technology, really. So what did that look like? What was that initial foray for you? Yeah, and it's really good that you bring that up, because I hate to be like, oh, back in my day, but like, you know, because, <laughs> because I don't really feel like it's that far away. 
But there was definitely a part where it's like, I didn't have the technology. I didn't have, and I wasn't like hugely tech savvy either. Like there's a lot of people that just like, even at a young mind, they can just like, just find ways to do it. But I, you know, so like my keyboard at the time, it could record things, but I didn't really know how exactly how to do it. And I could record things and I would play over it. I would sing over it. And that was really exciting. But in terms of just doing like trying to hold a piece of music in your brain, in my simple brain, because I know some people are just like prodigies and just like, yeah, I just wrote it, you know a whole orchestra or, you know, orchestrated thing. But even for me, just trying to hold all the different parts of all what all the different instruments were doing, I couldn't really do that, you know, which is why I started trying to do pencil paper. But, you know, it was interesting because this is what's great about being a pianist or a guitarist, which I'm not a guitarist, but I think it'd be great. I think that is a comparable instrument is that you, you do have so many different voices you can do. You've got the 10 fingers, you've got, and a voice, you know, so you, you can actually, you know, you've got your rhythm section, you've got your melody, you know, and you've got like some, maybe your melody is your voice. You know, so I, so it kind of was like, Oh, I'm a one man band kind of thing. So there was a lot of that, a little bit of technology, but a lot of it was like this really crude writing into a music notation software program called Finale. And now it's like everyone knows Finale or a lot of people know Finale and there's Sibelius and there's some other ones out there too. But at the time, Finale was like, I'd won this nerdy music competition. The prize <laughs> was my very own version of Finale. And I think it was like Finale 1.4. I don't even, I mean, it was like, so, now it's like Finale 25 or something. You know, and it was like a three and quarter inch floppy disk, you know? I mean, I still have it because... Why not? I mean, now it's like serious vintage, you know, but it comes with like the stacks and stacks of manuals, you know, that this, that I'm like, oh, this is so great. And it was so difficult to use. And I was very proud of myself that I was able to, to put the music in there and, and kind of play it in and then move the notes around if I couldn't figure out how to get my keyboard to actually hook up with the program. And then I would type my lyrics in. And I would, But I remember the people at my church were really nice because they allowed me to, um, like any of my choral stuff, my choral choir stuff they would like try it out for me and they would allow me to like conduct them I mean it was like man in retrospect it's like wow it was like you know a child's tea party <laughs> like I'm going to play tea and we're going to <laughs> pretend that I can write music and I remember printing out this stuff in finale and just being like and there were just typos everywhere because the pro- just for me the program was just so difficult to use so I would have like white out and I'm like okay white out this and then wait for the thing to dry and then you know and then like ah, oh, but the rehearsal starting and I had to like write in lyric oh man it was just it was so <laughs> difficult but I, you were you were actually asking about once probably once I got to college I think the school at the time, bless them, they were trying to get the technology up and going, but they did have a lab with computers and the keyboards set up and it was already hooked up, which was you know amazing. That's half the battle right there. And then they, um, they had Sibelius, which became the more sort of user-friendly music notation program to use. But anyway, so we would use that and they'd teach us how to do it. We would do little projects at a time. And, you know, I mean, kind of like in typing class when you like learn to type and you have to like spell dog and then you move on to like four letter words and then sentences and, you know, so it's kind of like that. And then um, we had assignments. So again, it was just really, really crude. And a lot of it was like pencil paper for me because that's really all I had at the time. And I, I do consider myself like, one of those people that like I started pencil paper, but I was never, I just knew that it wasn't for me. I knew that I needed something else. I needed to hear it and listen to it and play it in and hear it back at me instead of pencil paper. So, you know, I did learn logic, but a lot of it was just writing into Sibelius and then hearing it back that way. So that was, that was a good way for, for me to sort of learn, but, oh, they were pretty gross. I mean, the, the early compositions, even in my undergrad, 
I mean, I know so many people that they're like, oh, this is a, this is a piece I did in my freshman year. And it's like beautiful and it's fully formed. And it's just like, you know, wins competitions and mine are like, oh, we will never hear or speak of these things again. You know, they're embarrassing because they're just so, not even childish, it's not even the right word. They were just so like, not, not quite. <laughs> not right you know there's instruments that are out of range of the instrument you know it's just the kind of things that you kind of feel like you should know but even in college i didn't so it was pretty gross it was pretty gross <laughs> <laughs> and throughout that first college experience were there moments of that imposter syndrome where you're like oh no all these other people are so good and i'm not or totally totally and okay so i did spend four years there there's a lot of composition you know approach that you have and i mean to be honest i don't even know how i got into composition school because I mean you know I, I did get in as like a piano major and then there was obviously she's mu you know, musical but I, I even think you know composition is so subjective I mean there are certain schools I would never have been able to get into in their composition program and many that I applied to that I didn't get into but this one I got into so the, you know the, I did have my professors and I was learning and I was studying music and I was reading scores and I was seeing what the greats are doing and you, you start to learn I mean just you learn by imitation that's like everybody right but then we had recitals and we had we had recital rehearsals and you had your senior recital and you're also going to other people's recitals of recital attendance. So there was a lot of learning that way, but yeah, and then there was a lot of trial and error just, you know, and I realized I started smaller. Like I was like, you know what? I felt like the imposter. I was like, I have no business wielding this orchestra or this smaller ensemble. I have no business. I'm going to take it back to what I know, which is piano and voice. And that's why I think I did like a lot of choral stuff. I was in choirs. So I started doing a lot of that stuff with piano accompaniment because I'm like, I know how to do this. I accompanied choirs even starting in seventh, sixth or seventh grade. I was accompanying my school choirs. So it's like, those are the things I knew. So like, totally, I totally had imposter syndrome. I'm like, I am a fool. I have fooled everybody. I fooled myself. Um, and I've gone through several stages of my life where I felt that mm. way. <laughs> Some of them quite recent, but yeah, it definitely felt that. But I, Think, I, I think I went to the right school for it too, because there were actually very, very few composition majors, maybe for better or for worse. So it, you know, it probably didn't push me as hard or as far as I could have gone in that moment in time, but it could have also like really locked me up and just created this whole thing. Like I, I'm a fake, I'm a fraud, I can't do this. Um, so it's probably just the, the kind of person that I am and the kind of person that I was then, it's probably better that I didn't have so many great people around me besides my professors, you know. <laughs> That's awesome because I think sometimes that gentler approach leads to longer term success and sustainability and all that sort of good stuff. And back in the day, by the, by the way, where like we don't all get blue ribbons, we don't all get trophies. <laughs> like you actually have to be like good and earn the trophy. <laughs> right. So I basically have won nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And yet you persevere. And yet, and yet I can, yeah. <laughs> and at some point during that undergrad, you said to yourself, I assume, oh, I got to go study film scoring. I have to go to this. I have to be more focused. I have to learn all this stuff. Was there a moment? Was there an impetus? Did you learn about it from somebody when you wanted to study, like for the motion picture major? Or how did that go? So, yeah. So I was 12 or 13 when I decided, okay, I really want to do this. I want to be a film composer. But at the time... There were very, very few collegiate programs that offered that. There was one at Berkeley in Boston. And I, I actually did get accepted. I was not able to go for financial reasons. So again, I went the formal route of like straight up composition and theory, which which really was the best thing for me. Um, just because I do actually see myself as first a composer and then a film composer. And I feel like, not that I'm one of them, but I feel like the best film composers that I look up to, they are composers and then they are film composers. But because to me, it's an entirely different skill set, film composing. 
And so when I, when I did the undergrad and I, I graduated and everything, I, I was looking into graduate programs and I was looking into um, University of Miami because they actually had a, a master's degree. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to go back to school, man. I want like a master's. That feels accomplished, you know. But there just there really weren't that many. And then, of course, I learned about University of Southern California's uh, graduate program in uh, scoring for motion picture and television. And I went on their website and I was, they had the current class members and like their profiles and some of their music. And then they had like a couple of years prior to those different years and different classes. And I was like floored because they were so good. Like every single one of them, I'm like, whoa, this is some serious business. Okay, here we go. And I like my attitude back then because I, I didn't see it as like, a, I'm a failure. I saw it as like, cool, I'm not ready for that. But here's what I am going to do. I'm going to actually go back to school. <laughs> but before I go to that school, I'm going to try to go back to school. And so I was actually teaching piano at the time. That was like my full-time thing. I was teaching a lot of piano and I was, you know, it was kind of a full-time job and I was running my own business and I would travel to people's homes. And then I would also have a, a studio that they would come to me and just a lot of different things. And I'll admit that right after I graduated in undergrad, I, I was I was a little burnout in school. I was a little like roughed up from, you know, academically. And I was just like, I'm just going to kind of just get my bearings, make some money, you know, kind of thing. And so it did take me a couple of years to find the graduate program because I was just like, I can't even imagine where I'm at to school right now. And that's when I realized, I was like, yeah, I'm not really there yet. I'm not ready. So I went back to some college professors at my undergrad school and just sort of like, hey, can I just audit your classes? Can I bring you some compositions? Like, I'm serious about this now. And, and now I'm doing it less as like a structured curriculum. Here's all my credit hours and, you know, all that. And like, forget the requirements. We're all done with that. I'm going back to school in, in my way. So it's basically like self-study, I guess. And I basically was using the application process of like, I have to have three pieces and they have to have scores. And I basically use that as like, the thing. So I would take all, I mean, I worked on these pieces for so long and you know, something was orchestral and was a, like a vocalese piece in there as well. But yeah, it, it, I was not ready for grad school, any grad school. And I, I did decide on USC because I thought, well, at the time it was not a master's program. It was a graduate certificate, but I was like, oh, I really want the degree. But then I, I just, I did as much research as you could back then, because again, I hate to say it, but like the internet was just not then what it is now. So the, the, you know, just disbursement of information. It just really wasn't there. And I, no one that I knew was doing it. Like nobody. They're just like, wow, that's a really difficult industry. And I was just like, yeah, no kidding. It's so difficult that I don't know anyone who does it. But I was able to, through just a couple of different connections, reach out to just via email and instantly. They actually wrote me back. One of them was Bruce Broughton. And he said something amazing that I'll never forget. He's like, if you can imagine yourself happy doing anything else, go and do that because you got to really want this. And, and what was awesome about that is it didn't scare me. It actually made me go head first further because I was like, I totally want this. I will not be happy doing anything else. And, you know, it's all for the pursuit of happiness. You know, it, it, I mean, I, it was like making my battle cry. I just, I really, really wanted it. But compositionally, I was so not ready, you know, and I told myself I was going to give myself three years to apply three times to USC. Because I'm like, this is LA. I, I could get a master's in University of Miami, but then I still have to get out to LA. And I, it's just, it just seems so far reaching financially, geographically, logistically, compositionally, I mean, everything, musically, it just seemed completely unattainable. But I'm just like baby steps. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to give myself three years. And if I don't get in after the third year, then I'm going to take this money that I'm saving up to go to school and to live out there. And I'm just going to start going out there myself and taking, doing the workshops 
trying to meet people and just like, just do it myself and then maybe keep applying or not. But you know, and, uh, I did get in on the first try, which is amazing. I, it was a dream come true. And that's how we're here in LA. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> There's so much to what you just said. That's super important because I think there are a lot of people who are getting into composition or going to school or just graduating who may have been rejected from a school or may have the idea of like, oh, crap. I don't know how I can possibly make this happen, but you are going to do stuff anyway, regardless. So what would you tell someone who's in that position of like, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't go to LA alone. Like, I'm so scared. What would you say to them? I would I would first start with what Bruce said to me, which was like, if this is like your happiness or, or your potential for happiness, then nothing's going to stop you. And that really goes for anybody, right? If like, if you really want this. And I would also say though, you do have to really want it. It's a really difficult industry. Like it's not about gender. It's not about, because I know the platform is all open now to diversity and, and equity inclusion. And that's really amazing. And that's really important. And I'm glad that we're returning that ship. But regardless, it's a really difficult industry. But if you want it, like if you really feel like this, I, I could do this. I could really do this. Or even if you're not sure, like you can give it a try. It's a little different. Like you, if you want to be a doctor, I, it's, you can't really try to be a doctor. You got to like really commit. You're going to school for a really long time. I mean, yeah. yeah. This is not that. We're not saving lives here. But I, I would say like now more than ever, you can totally do it. And I would say it's easier. Everyone always thinks that people today have it easier than they did and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And I had it easier than people before me. But I do think with the easier part, in some ways it's harder, in some ways easier. The easier part to me is that there's so much, again, you've got internet, you've got references, you've got resources, you've got connections. Now with like technology, with Zoom, you can actually assist people and do things not in LA. Although I do think that LA is, it is good to be here. There's more content being produced. So there's more jobs, there's more need for jobs. There's more, you know, people who like have a different voice and they're telling stories a different way. So they want people to tell musical stories in a different way. If you're a band person, if you're, I mean, that's the thing you don't even have to want to do this. You just want to be in music and someone approaches you and say, Hey, I love your YouTube video performing your own music. Would you do my movie? <laughs> now there's so many ways to put yourself out there and advertise and market yourself. And I feel like that right there is like half the battle. I mean, I, Come on, like thumb drives, CDs. <laughs> I wasn't in the eight track world, so I didn't want my demos on eight track, but I had to burn my CDs. I miss cassette tapes too. I mean, in terms of professional, I obviously grew up on cassette tapes, but I never had to put any demos or anything on a cassette tape. I think mine was CDs and then thumb drives from there on. But that was really hard. There wasn't like to take a video of yourself. Oh my gosh. I mean, that was, that's a lot, you know? And then that's, there's, those files are so big. No one's going to look at that. No one's going to, it's never, it's never, never going to load on your website, you know? But yeah, there's just so many ways to do that. You've got Instagram, you've got social media. So there's just, the thing is, is I would tell anybody who like wants to do it, just like start doing something, especially if you want to do it or if you think you want to do it, just look at all the people doing things and where they're getting discovered, where they're getting discovered, how they're getting discovered, how they fall into something. So that's my advice is like, just there's no excuse now. There is no excuse for not doing it <laughs> because there's all of these methods and mediums and platforms and and, it, and it's tough because I don't I don't love social media and I don't love doing it but I obviously you know try to put myself out there and I think we all try and do that but it's it's difficult but there's just so many ways to do it and and get FaceTime with people and say hey here's my music here's my here's what I do so just do it <laughs> you hit on a lot of important things that like hinted at that there's a lot of moving parts to becoming a composer full-time because the misconception is that you're just sitting at your piano looking at the moon all day and you drink a glass of wine and genius flows out of you and that's all you do all day if only 
I mean, that's how it happens for me. So. <laughs> your other listeners, but <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk to all the other aspects that it takes to being a pro, from being like a psychic to being able to read the director's mind, all the way to the promotion and marketing, everything? I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I do think that what film composers are doing, what I am doing as a film composer, and what my other you know peers and colleagues do is we are storytellers and we're using our music to tell a story. And it is obviously service. It's in the service of the story. It's in the service of the visuals, especially for in, in, with film and TV. Like I, I feel like the first thing that I try and do is ask myself, what is the function of score here? What is the purpose? I either ask myself on a global project level, like here's the film, what do we need to do? And then from there, I start saying, okay, then that's like the end, right? That's the end game. And then from there, you kind of work backwards and it changes let's say for, from scene to scene. I've worked on projects in, in, in episodic or even sometimes film where they say, you know, we're really trying to feel something that we directed the actors not to show us because we, we want them to be stoic or we want them to be this way. But we really actually want to feel the emotion that they're not showing on purpose, you know? And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's amazing and awesome. And now I'm going to go like, you know, make you cry. But then there are other times where it's like, wow, we really need, you know, something to kind of move this along because we feel like it's dragging. We feel like it's dragging a little bit. So now all of a sudden it's, you know, now music has to play a different role. Now it has to be propulsive. It has to be quicker. It has to be more rhythmic. It has to be more engaging. So one example is like something that is dramatic. Dramatically, you want to do this. Another example is something kind of a little bit more logistical. You know, it's like, we didn't get this take. We lost light. So we actually had to change locations. And because of that, it's a little confusing. We're trying to bridge the gap with ADR. We're trying to do some VFX here, but really we need music to really help us bring it home and sell it because we didn't really quite get it. You know, that's a completely logistical task of music. So then you start moving out of the realm of my beautiful composition where I was able to state my theme twice and then <laughs> modulate, you know, and it's like, no, we got to cut it short there because we have to make a turn or we have to do something else. So again, it's less in service of the music itself and, and just really in service of like the story. So there's the actual doing it, right? There's the doing the work. This is like after you get the job. You know, there's doing the work, there's presenting the ideas. There's nothing more terrifying than the first offer, in my opinion, of like, here's what my idea is. What do you think? You know, and it could be just like, wow, that's a great piece of music for someone else's film. <laughs> like, I love that. You know, and that's happened. And you just go, you go again, you try again. But that's the thing, you know, like that, that's the job. And then again, all of the in service of all of those things. I do think that music is we are the last of the party. We're, we're the last of the party, but I think we're really important guests, you know? <laughs> but I, I still think of film composers as, you know, part of the writing team. The writing is long since over, right? They've done, they've already written it. They've moved on to other projects. It's now shot and edited and color corrected and the VFX are in, but I'm, I'm the last one to help us write, you know, to, help, to do that kind of thing. Gosh, when you've got the project, I guess written, it's done, and I maybe I maybe go into recording or something like that. If you want to have any like any kind of logistical things like that, there's recording, the music, and then that's a separate team of people that I've got to put in place to to put that music onto paper so that it can put it in front of musicians. And then there's producing those sessions, and there's getting it mixed and reviewing those mixes and making sure that everything that got approved that you conceptualize and then it got approved all through the steps made it to the scoring stage, made it to the, the score mixing stage, and now makes it to the dub stage where it all gets married together. And then marketing, I feel like you're usually at the whim of like whatever the studio wants to do. 
you know, there's a lot that's out of my control about that. You know, sometimes I'm like, hey, you know, if you want to do a soundtrack, if you want to do this, I can make all that available. And they do. A lot of times they ask for that and they're just like, yeah, we want to, you know, have it have a soundtrack out, but we need to get it out by this time. So we got to make those deadlines. I mean, I'm painting a really, really glossy. <laughs> this is like, these are, look, look at how rounded these edges are. Look right. how <laughs> lovely this thing. But in between there, there's all kinds of like, you know, logistical things that you don't even, nobody really thinks about. And every project is different. There's always a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You're never, the politics of it are so interesting. Like you're never just working for one person. Although I will say, and this was something that I was told to me that I thought was really, really good. I'll say it the way that it was said to me. I don't mean it in this way, but you got to know on a project who is God, who is the person that you're really answering to, because you will have a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You will have a lot of feedback. You will have committees of people saying, I think the music should be like this. Well, we're getting this note from this studio. We're getting this note from this producer or this director. Hey, the editor has a thought too. I mean, you know, everybody and like, oh, you know, I was just talking to my husband last night and he was saying he loves the score to such and such. It's a huge hit on TV. We want the score to be more like that. And it's like, well, okay. But you kind of have to know how to take it all in and filter it. And in the end, you know, you're, you're in the driver's seat. So it's like this car does have to stay on the road. <laughs> and then who's that person that will help you keep stay on the road, you know, because we can't change the score all like that, or we can't make it like something else that's already on TV, because why would you want that? Anyway, we're making something new, we're making something different. How do you incorporate those things? So finding out who that person is, whether it's your showrunner on an episodic thing, or a director, if it's a film, or it usually is those people. And then hopefully, help them help you filter out all the notes. Say, hey, I'm getting a note from here. I'm getting a note from here. I just want to maybe talk about those two different sides of it because they feel a little contradictory to me. So how do we work on that? And, and then through conversation, that's a really other important part of this whole thing. It's, it's hours and hours in your room by yourself writing music and conceptualizing and crying and <laughs> many other things that go into the birth of a piece of music. But there's also a lot of communication, I think, at least the, the most successful times I've had, there's been a lot of communication going into it and saying, hey, I'm running into this. What do you think? And, and I try to really come from a place of curiosity. I try not to say things like, yeah, that's not possible. <laughs> that, that kind of stops a conversation. you know. And, it, and the truth is, is a lot of people who don't write music have a difficult time talking about music. It's the scariest part for a lot of filmmakers. Some of them is just like, I don't really know how to talk about this. Is that okay? You know, do I need to know music in order to talk about music? Like, totally not, you know, totally not. What I encourage them to do is talk about your project, talk about your film, talk about your characters. You know, I read the script or I saw the cut. I, I know what I'm seeing as an audience member, but you wrote it or, or you directed it or you've been living with it for a really long time. Tell me what they're feeling. What is that character feeling? Are we missing something? Is there too much of something? Like, hey, we get the emotion. We don't need to hear the emotion in the music. What we need to feel is an undercurrent of something else. So have those conversations with your people. I like to, because that's the only way you're going to get to what the best function of score and the best thing. Because I mean, is there a right way? Or is there a wrong way? I don't know. I don't really know that it's even my job to say whether it's right or wrong, but it's definitely someone's idea. And there's a way that I think works better, or there's just like a choice. Like I made a choice. They made a choice. We're going that way. We're doing it. We're playing it this way, you know, right or wrong. So conversations are really important. I have a lot of those with. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, even after all that, you can write something and they can say, oh, this is amazing for someone else's thing. 
so how do you kind of deal with that? Because that's a common thing. But I think a lot of people who are especially starting or intermediate don't think that happens to pros. They think they just nail it first try every single time. Oh, my gosh. And it's so funny that you say that because, you know, I do think for everyone at every stage of life in any part of career, we're just like, oh, when I get to be there, I won't have to eat my veggies anymore. <laughs> when I get to be here, no one can tell me what to do. And you, you think like, oh, when I get to be, you know, John Williams, Danny Elfman, you know, no, <laughs> no. I mean, I don't know those iconic people personally, and I don't know all their stories, but no, even they're just like, no, this is a job. There's a purpose. There's a function. And it's a job that you want to do. It's not like no one's making you do this. You know, this is something that I, this is what I am here for. I'm here to figure this out. And I think it goes in phases. Like I, I had one recently that was just like exactly what it was. I was like, wow, this is like, I don't even really know what to say, Sherry. This is, um, I think we, I think we should talk again about, <laughs> you know, and then they start telling you what their story's about. And I'm like, no, I, I know what your story's about. I, I watched it. I, I, I get it. You know, it's difficult. And think, I think that is where two things come into play. It's hard because you're an artist and you just got rejected. And that really sucks. And there, and that's never going to feel good. Okay. Whether you're dating or whether <laughs> your masterpiece is being thrown out or whether someone laughs at what you chose to wear today, it's rejection is never going to feel good. But I think that where I come out of that is like, this isn't personal. This isn't personal. They didn't come to my show and throw eggs on the stage. <laughs> okay. They hired me to do a job. Now there's a lot more involved in that. I'm not just hired to do a job. I'm hired to feel and think and emote and all the rest of it. Yes. But when I, when you just cut all the emotion out of it, it's like they hired me to do a job. I need to do a job. So take the personal out of it and nothing ever gets thrown out. Come on. It just lives on in like my little library. I can send it out for a reel. Maybe it's just an inkling of an idea for another project at some point. I don't know, but it's not personal. And sometimes they can say it in really difficult ways that they're just like, wow like where you feel like you have no idea that that was something that i created from nothing like you, you know because people turn on the radio right. music's there it's just there and you get desensitized to the fact that somebody went vulnerable to produce that and put that out there and it's all vetted because by the time it makes on the radio it's completely vetted so it's like yeah i did that I, you know i'm like super confident about it but you know and we become desensitized to it because music is everywhere commercials television trailers it's all, it's all out there so take the personal, take, take that out of there. It's not personal. You're, you got to do a job. Then I think we get to the other side of it of like of the question, which is like, that's the craft. The craft of it is now you got to sit down and you have to reimagine it a different way. And that's really hard because it's like, sometimes if you really, really like believe in this idea, it's really difficult. I think for me to go in and be like, oh, wow, I have to literally think of this in a completely different way that I just didn't. I didn't think of it, you know, and that's really hard. And I think maybe the way to get out of that sometimes or the way to, is, is just literally to try again. I mean, this is where I think for me personally, being a pianist really helps me because I'm, I'm also an improviser. And so sometimes just like I put my hands on the keyboard and just watch the picture and just start playing something, you know, just start playing something and see like, well, that's crap or that's junk or that's wait, wait a second, wait a tick, you know, there's something there. And that's, that to me is the craft of it. And it's like going back and saying, okay, well, they want something different. So let's just let it go that it, the other idea didn't work. Have the conversation. I do think that it's also important that I have to also figure out the questions to ask because clearly the conversation that I had with them at the beginning led me to believe that this was the right way to go. Now I have learned this was not the right way to go. So now I need to figure out, well, crap, 
I need to realign my questioning to them. I need to realign my conversation with them. And that's really, really difficult. And that's where a lot of, like I said, a lot of the craft comes in. Now I need to start asking different questions and thinking about, well, that answer to that made me go here. So now how do I, how do I recalibrate and, you know, the whole thing. So it's, it's tricky. It's really hard. But like I said, there's, there's the craft of it and there's the creation of the artist side of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as a uh, broad question, in terms of your career, in terms of your musical life, however you want to put it, what's one of the best decisions you've ever made? I know it sounds kind of like we've already covered it, but I will say this, going to USC, like going to graduate school and getting myself out here to Los Angeles was the best decision that I could have made. And I know that kind of maybe just, I'm not really dodging the question, but it truly is where everything came from because that's where I met the professors and the advisors that were there. That's where I made connections with friends. That's where I made connections with musicians who were able to help me on my student projects. Hey, will you do this non-union gig? You know, will you help me out? And then of course I'm still calling them as I now have union gigs and you, you know, that kind of thing. So like they believed in me, they took a chance on me, but that's where I met those people. And that's where I cut my teeth. And that's where I also, for me, I realized, oh yeah, I can do this. I, I measure up and measure up. You know, there were definitely people who were better than me in my class. There were definitely people that I think maybe, you know, weren't as far along in, in their, you know, kind of thing. But that's where I learned all of it. That's also where I got my connection to Walter Murphy, where I became his assistant. Like as I was leaving USC, he writes on Family Guy and American Dad. So I was able to like go to his sessions and do assistant work and help put sessions together and watch how he communicated with musicians, what the right way is and how we respectfully do that. And just kind of seeing this side of the glass as opposed to the musician side of the glass, which is like, which I had known more of and about because I'd just been a musician for all these years. That's also where I met Blake Neely, who was one of the advisors. And that's, of course, where a lot of my career turned in the past five or six years. But even even before that, that's where I met several filmmakers and, and producers that I that were in school with me. And then I'm still working with them now, 12 years later. So I, I really just say it's like going there, putting myself in that situation, taking a chance, saving up money and moving and just doing it and saying, my hole in the wall in LA is moving me forward, you know, even more than like my, my sizable apartment back where I was coming from, you know, it's just like putting myself out there and in that position and taking that leap of faith on myself, you know, kind of betting on myself as it were. Um, it didn't feel like that at the time, by the way, it actually felt like this was, well, why wouldn't I do this? Why wouldn't I go to school for this? Or would I, you know, but maybe just to further that too, I would say that showing up, you know, like showing up, not just in LA, Hey, I'm here, but like showing up to each of those opportunities. I mean, I would have never gotten those opportunities sort of continue those relationships had I not just dove deep into the relationship at first and said, Hey, I reconnect. You're a filmmaker. I'm, I'm just going to put everything I have into your project and, and hope that, you know, you take me with you <laughs> when you get, you know, when you go up there and, you know, it rise in your career as well. And they have, and they are, and, and I'm doing the same and it's really exciting, you know, for that. So I think showing up and just like taking that leap and just going for it. I mean, it sounds so cheesy to say too, because everyone says that and it's like, mm, you know, but I think it's important to say that you don't really know what's a risk at the time. Like you don't necessarily know what feels risky. You know, people that are successes, you know, the, the big thing that made them a success, they didn't know it was going to be a success. They didn't know that Star Wars was going to be what it was. Nobody knew that. Everyone just did the best job they could on this project. And then, you know, so I feel like that's something else that's something global, very specific, but also on a global level, that's what I'm trying to do all the time. And it's not because I never know where it will go. I never know if this will be the one to get me, you know, really successful, but it's more like, that's my name. That's all I have is my name, right? It's all we have is our name and it's our product and it's my brand. And it's like, I'm going to do the best that I can. So I feel like starting back then, just showing up 
doing the best you can, doing doing the work. I love it. So a question that I ask everybody near the end of each episode, and you kind of hit on this a little bit already, but when you first started, and that could be anything when you first start playing piano or when you were in school, whatever starting point you want to pick for your career, how did you define success and how has that changed and how do you define it now? Man, I this is such a loaded question. It's such a really good one. And I feel like I have to check in with myself constantly about what my definition of success is. Because if I go by my original definition, it was, I want to be a film composer, as in, I want that to be my, my source of gainful employment, you know, and it's like, cool, did that. But even before that, I was like, I just want to be a film composer. And what I tell newer up and coming ones, Hey, if you're scoring a film right now, you're a film composer. Guess what? You've already made your goal. Okay. So then you get to the place where you're like, oh, no, 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 well, what I really meant was I got to make a living doing it. Okay. So now that's my definition of success. Now what my definition of success is. I think I think a really important question is like, well, why can't that just be it? <laughs> why can't I just say, okay, you reach success? I think my definition of success right now, in a very healthy way, I've got I probably have some very unhealthy ones too, but I think in a healthy way, I have to constantly be growing as a composer, and I have to feel like I am. And I do have a couple of projects that I'm doing right now where I'm like, yep, I totally see the stretch marks. <laughs> like, I see it, and that's awesome. And that means I was challenged because you, there are definitely times where I think we might take a project and the way that we're challenged is like, well, that really challenged my bandwidth. That really challenged my tolerance. That really challenged my ability to produce more fucks to give. It challenges you or maybe it challenges your stamina, which is important. And I, I have had my stamina challenge in that way and, I, and bandwidth challenge in a really good way too. But compositionally, that's that is success to me. If I can feel as though I'm growing as a composer, and and this is where this is where it gets a little harder because you can't really control what other people think. But if I can feel that I'm being respected as a composer in the industry at large, in people who hire me, but also maybe in my peers, you know, people that would just congratulate me, you know, as opposed to hire me. I feel like if I feel like I'm doing the work that makes me feel good about that, and then maybe also separately from that, also kind of feel that from feel that love coming back, I feel like that's success because, you know, I think everyone wants to be respected in their field and respected for the work that they do by those who also do it, who also walk in your shoes and feel the pain, you know, and I feel like that that's a, that's a huge amount of what success means to me. I love it. And as a final question, where can people find you? Plug anything. Um. Twitter. I'm on the tweets. <laughs> What's my handle? Um, I know I should have that. Um, it's Sherry underscore Chung for Twitter. For Instagram, it's Sherry Chung. I think you can find me on Facebook on the Sherry Chung, which sounds very pretentious, but uh, <laughs> I just, I think there might've been another Sherry Chung out there and there can be only one. Yeah. So, and uh, you'll find me in my studio <laughs> glued to the chair in this room. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think people get a lot of good insights out of this. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound biz pod sound b-i-z pod and that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects they'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound 
Thanks so much. And I'll see you next time.